Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea, chapter 8, as we continue a series of user-friendly sermons out of the book of Hosea. Not really. <laughs> if it's one thing the book of Hosea has plenty of, it is judgment. And... Um, it is without doubt that God intends for us to hear this word, uh, maybe even more than many of us are comfortable with. Uh, it doesn't make anyone comfortable to hear about the truth of the judgment of God, and yet, uh, please understand as we go through these judgment passages that the purpose of these passages being in Scripture are to get you to despair of any hope of fixing yourself or saving yourself or delivering yourself or redeeming yourself through whatever means and to drive you, literally drive you on your knees to Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of these passages. In case I don't get that said clearly, I wanted to say it up front. So here now, the word of the Lord, as we begin in chapter 8, and we will look at all of chapter 8 this morning. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. Is it not God? The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria. A wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Nor will he remember their iniquity, and now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker. And built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour 
her strongholds. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that as we go back and look at this Old Testament prophet centuries ago, uh, standing in the face of such unbelief and rebellion, proclaiming your word, we pray that as the word goes forth today, it will speak to us, it will confront us, it will convict us, it will draw us to you, it will correct us, it will give us hope, it will point us to the way of life, and we pray that as your spirit opens our eyes, we will behold wonderful truth from your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If there's one theme that unifies all the diversity that we have just read in this chapter, it is this. Israel's dangerous self-reliance. You know, I used to ask myself the question, well, what is the opposite of faith? God always calls us to faith. He does almost everything he does in us and through us and to us by faith. Faith is the instrument through which God's grace enters our lives. Faith is the empty hand reaching out, receiving God's bounty. But what is the opposite of faith? And I used to believe in my earlier days that it was doubt. And doubt is another thing altogether. But biblically speaking, the opposite of faith is self-reliance. It is a reliance upon your own wisdom your own power, your own resources, your own abilities. It is trusting in yourself. Uh, I remember a quote from uh, P.T. Forsyth, Peter Taylor Forsyth. This quote haunts me constantly. He said this. He said, prayerlessness is the sign of self-reliance. A prayerless heart is one that depends upon self. And so we see, as we look at this chapter, which seems to go in all kinds of directions, you seem to have uh, a, an oscillation or a movement between both the political actions of Israel and the worship religious acts of Israel. And to us, that may sound strange, but to them, it was all connected. You see, the political aspects of Israel were also included in the covenant arrangement and therefore both the religious and the political were one because Israel was a theocracy. They were a nation under God, uh, under God in covenant with God, in this case the Mosaic Covenant also called the Old Covenant. And because of that the, the author feels free to include in his indictments against this nation who is rapidly deteriorating. This is the northern kingdom, the tribes of the north that were rapidly uh, losing all hope and in any semblance of normalcy. And so because of that, the, uh, the prophet speaks for God and God speaks through the prophet to the people and the one thing that I think as I've looked at this passage over and over is that what unifies the diversity of this chapter is Israel's dangerous self-reliance with its self-appointed kings, its man-made calf, 
its expensive allies, its own version of religion, and its impressive fortresses. What God makes of all of this and what kind of test it could survive, these people have no, not troubled to ask themselves. If you were to meet an average Israeli on the street during the time of Hosea, during the time of the northern kingdom, and you were to ask them, well, how's it going? How's it going in the nation? How's it going in northern Israel? And he would have said, oh, we're fine. Everything's going about like we could expect. Maybe next time we'll have a coup and an overthrow of this king and get a better king. But things seem to be okay. They were totally deluded because idolatry deludes you into thinking that's normal when it is not, as, not at all normal. So no one in Hosea's days... Uh, felt like there was any big to do with what's going on and Hosea immediately says it's like you're gazing complacently at the house of the Lord and the house of the Lord here just means the people of God under the old covenant it's not the temple because the north didn't have the temple the temple was in the south and so all of a sudden somebody notices a speck in the sky and so God says Set the trumpet to your lips. Now, the only time you would set the trumpet to your lips is to send out a warning, an alarm. Something is coming. Something is happening. The alarm system is going off. And in this case, he points to a ravenous bird. And the question is whether or not this bird is an eagle or a vulture. I kind of like vulture. <laughs> And the reason, have you ever seen a vulture up close? It's about the ugliest creature I have ever seen in my life. And usually when you see them, you're not around pleasant things anyway, are you? Usually they're plucking something off of something dead, right? A carcass. You see the vultures circling, circling usually know something's dead below, and they're going to feed off that carcass. And so the vulture swoops down. He's, he's circling above now, but he's ready to swoop down. And of course, the reason why I think it might be vulture instead of eagle, but it, the word could be either one, okay? Either one. Because Assyria's symbol of strength and its logo for government was what? The eagle. And so when he says the eagle... It's flying overhead. Assyria is about to come down on you people. Assyria is about to come down. And I would rather give Assyria, in this case, the vulture logo that, rather than the eagle logo. But that's just me. But the vulture doesn't have a long time to wait. The object of its interest is this nation. And its plight is at this point too late to mend. I don't know if you've noticed, but as we go through Hosea's book, the judgment and the calls for judgment and the warnings of judgment are intensifying as we go along through the book. We're getting close to it being beyond the time. And so he tells them, put the trumpet to your lips. Yet nobody could quite believe it. You can sort of sense their mood as the chapter unfolds. Yeah, times are bad. But surely we're, we're not desperate at this point. You know, another coup may bring the right man to the top. And uh, yeah, we, we're a little bit politically in trouble, but 
we're bidding high for our allies and religion there. We're really strong with our religion. Uh, we're worshiping more than ever. And defense, well, let me tell you something about defense. We have fortified cities that are impregnable. Nobody can get through. So let's cheer up. But the cry of verse 2 from the people is this. We, Israel, know you. The double reliance here on birth and breeding would show itself again in the Jews' disputes with Jesus. We are descendants of Abraham. We are disciples of Moses. We know. And the divine reply is virtually the same in both instances. Your actions drown out your words. What you do is speaking so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. You are hypocrites. You are hypocrites because your claim to call me my God is a covenantal term. And your claim to tell me that you know me is also a covenantal term. And yet you are breaking this covenant I have with you, this intimate bond, this marriage as it were, full of obligations and stipulations, and you are violating it and breaking it, and yet you're still telling me you know me that you're in some kind of close relationship with me. It reminds me of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where people come and claim to have done all these marvelous things in his name. And Jesus says to them what? Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. And so these people are living in a delusion what may seem at first merely a repetitive in triple accusations of verses 1 through 3, it is triply devastating for the covenant spoke of in verse 3, the basic relationship with God as binding and as intimate as a marriage and the law spelt out the ways in which alone that partnership could be harmonious. And the good covers not only all of this, but even God himself, because he is the good one. But these people have turned away from him and have violated his covenant. It is as if Isaiah's words speak again to us. You have spent your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. And we might add your life for certain death. These people have abandoned him. Israel has spurned the good one. Therefore, the enemy shall pursue him. Who is the enemy? Well, the ultimate enemy is God. But the close nearby enemy is Assyria. God raises up a nation, Assyria, to bring judgment upon his wayward children. God uses means to accomplish his ends. And while Assyria might have thought this is a great time to go invade and take these people down, it was by God's sovereign permission that they did it. And so here the people were in deep weeds, in deep trouble and so they turned to self-help <laughs> they went to the local barnes and noble and they went to the self-help section and started reading self-help now the rest of the chapter pursues the theme launched in the first word of verse four they made kings 
For the Hebrew makes they emphatic here. Everything that follows has this pattern. They, but not through me. Whether it's politics, religion, diplomacy, or defense. They set up puppet kings and they worshipped puppet gods. The classic comment on not through me and without my knowledge is from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds a house... Unless the Lord watches over the city, it is in vain. And this disastrous king-making was part of a long series we see in Scripture. Starting as far back as Abimelech. And reaching up to its spiritual climax. When presented with Jesus and Barabbas, the people cried out, Not this man, but Barabbas. The cry is echoed wherever the voice of the people drown out the voice of God and where we set up leaders and regimes supposedly answerable only to ourselves and when we treat even the moral law as subject to the vote and the climate of opinion. This idea of king-making, how were kings to be made? They were to be the prophets were to be consulted the people were to seek God's face before the choice of any king was made but you got to understand the historical context this is a mess from the time of Hosea's day uh, king making was brutal there was a series and I've told you this before of conspiracies assassinations and bloody coups and God saw it as the people's doing for all and for the violence at the top had its roots in the anarchy below next the puppet gods we have the golden calf or the young bull as a man-made God had an even longer past for Israel than the man-made king. Its famous first appearance, of course you know, was outrageously at the foot of Mount Sinai. I love the way Aaron said it happened. He, he commanded all the people to bring all the silver and gold, and when confronted by Moses, he said, I just threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> Sounds like my children when I'd catch them in wrongdoing, you know, some of that creative lawyering they were doing with me. I don't know what happened. I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. It's a miracle. You know how they usually did these for idols? Uh, it wasn't so much that the calf always represented the deity as it was often in these idols in the ancient Near East, animals would always be the base of the uh, altar in the base of where the God dwelt and so often bulls a team of oxen or bulls or whatever were built as the base and nothing would be on the top of that that's where the false God was worshipped but in this case they actually formed a calf and placed him in the place of deity even back in the Exodus time they were arguing that this simply represents Yahweh it's it's not a false God here we're simply providing ourselves we don't want to worship an invisible God we now have a visible God and that's what they did and so they made an idol in the image of the creature to us a golden calf may seem completely unconvincing but an accepted superstition rather like an established point of etiquette can put anything almost beyond challenge 
bypassing reason, when reason utterly explodes it, as Hosea's argument does here. In addition, though, it is probably reflected an element of pagan thinking, since a bull is an obvious symbol of brute strength and sexual potency, qualities which corrupt societies always tend to idolize. In that case, ancient Israel and Canaan may be closer than we suppose. And there's a telling link between verse 3 and verse 5 in the strong word spurned. It is a sharp reminder that our lordly choices are not the last word in any situation. There is another will. There is another verdict to be reckoned with. And it may be appeal, an appeal, spurn your calf, O Samaria, for there is once again a divine yearning in verse 5. How long mingled with anger. Look at verse 5. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? They are filled with guilt. How long is the divine patience reaching its breaking point with these people? Well, from verse 7 onward, they turn to what is easily could be called desperate diplomacy. Now this idea of sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind, I've heard that all my life. I've been told that all my life. And guess what? I read 21 references on the book of Hosea as to what this, this saying means. And guess what I found out? 21 different answers. Nobody knows for sure. So if you're sowing in, in those days, you've tilled the ground, and you go out and you scatter the seed, and if there's a little breeze coming, that's fine, because as you scatter the seed and the wind carries it, then your crop gets sown probably a little better than just walking and doing it by hand. But he says if you sow to the wind, which you really don't have any control over, you reap the whirlwind. It's become so much a part of our language that we may miss the surprise of it here. Hearing it for the first time, we should expect the reaping to be simply negative. Put nothing in it and you'll get nothing out. Instead, the harvest is a positive disaster. As Paul said in the book of Galatians, he who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap, not disappointment, but rotten flesh, corruption for there are no half measures. The main context here is foreign policy, but the main issue is faith and fidelity. Israel was gambling on one hunch after another, forever changing sides, desperately bidding for influential friendships. This way she would win only distrust and scorn as a useless vessel, or as one translation puts it, a crock that nobody wants and in the end would reap the terrible fate of a traitor. 
So the metaphorical harvest, the whirlwind of judgment, would be accompanied by quite literally empty fields, either as the fertility cult of Baal failed its devotees. The reason why they had engaged in syncretism, they had blended, as it were, you know, a lot of churches try to blend contemporary and uh, traditional, but in uh, Israel, they were blending Yahwehism and Baalism, and you can't do that. You destroy one by the other. But they had blended them together because they wanted the good life. They wanted all the promises God had made for their obedience. Go back and read Deuteronomy 28 this afternoon. Read the whole chapter. And you will see that God promises, on the one hand, blessings if you obey me. And in those blessings are always the wonderful provision of wheat and, and, and grain and harvest and wine and uh, cattle and just multiplying signs of God's face of approval shining on his people. But but as you read further in Deuteronomy 28, you'll see people uh, turning away from God and it turns away from the blessings of obedience to the covenant to the curses of the disobedience. And that's what you see in this passage. This is total Mosaic covenantal judgment here. Hosea is saying it's coming. You're going to lose it all. And turning to politics one way or the other is not going to spare you. Dabbling in evil, we may be amateurs, but we're playing with professionals who will make short work of us as we are warned not only in the well-known saying of Ephesians 6.12, but in the detailed admonitions that lead up to it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And so, Hosea looks at them as they turn to this idea of a wild donkey wandering along is quite a word picture. A wild burrow or donkey wandering alone with his nose up in the air, sniffing and following whichever way is a picture of what this nation is doing. Donkey's probably in heat. And therefore, he's using the analogy again of hired lovers as turning away from him. But notice something here. In the midst of all of what's going on, Ephraim tears it up when it comes to worship. These people are amazingly religious. Amazingly religious. Look at what it says. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. <laughs> in other words, in the very process of setting up altars to offer sacrifices for sin, they have rather than gotten rid of the sin, as God promised, but only increased sinning. Why? Because of their motives. Because of why they were doing it why they were doing it. Altars for sin offerings have become altars for sinning. Paul had to warn us of something very similar. It seems to be an occupational disease of worshipers to think more of the mechanics than the meaning of what we do. 
more of getting it right than getting ourselves right, and this can degenerate from thoughtlessness into something worse, ranging from cynical detachment, if we are sophisticated, to religious superstition if we are not. What the prophet shows us is heaven's strong reaction to such attitudes, that this parody of worship is not simply valueless, uh, as we might have guessed, but insulting and even sickening to God, attracting the very judgment it is supposed to avert. And so while there was no shortage in the offering up of sacrifices, there was no repentance in anyone's heart offering them. They had been swallowed up, as it were, by the nations, Egypt, to the south, Assyria to the north. And they have become another version of those nations, weak as it were, absolutely ridiculous. But they're offering sacrifices, why? Trying to atone for their insincerity and their hypocrisy, but there was no worship that came from the heart, a repentant, broken heart and the gulf between such worshipers and God as seen at its widest in verse 12 there is no meeting of the minds divine and human or wills God's law notice what it says were I to write from them my law by the ten thousands they would regard it as a strange thing these people were not interested in hearing from God and obeying what God had clearly revealed they were to do. But the Lord does not accept it. He does not accept it. Why were they that way? Well, the Bible tells us the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But there was none of that among these people. And the threat, they shall return to Egypt. Look at that. They shall return to Egypt. Now that isn't literally they're going to go back to Egypt and become slaves, but their lifestyle is going to become what it was in Egypt. In other words, the great epic of the Exodus is going to be reversed as this nation is taken into exile. And some would flee to Egypt, as it were, to get away from that as refugees. But Assyria was going to be their conqueror and their captor. And so rather than being this, this treasured possession, this nation delivered out of Egypt, this nation stamped with God's love upon it, this nation in covenant with Yahweh, now because of the hardness of their heart and the delusion of their soul, and the wickedness of what they even bleeding over into everything they did and said had now retraced their steps back to Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But even so, the last word is not grace. In this case, it is captivity. And so, what would happen to this nation? What was, what was the horror of captivity? Captivity meant 
that God had turned his back and abandoned his people. For Israel has forgotten his maker. The first sentence is the key to it for the Old Testament uh, is important. Notice, we have forgotten our maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. These people were seeking security through misplaced trust. In other words, they thought, we're fine. We've got fortified cities. We're building these fine buildings. You know, even Nehemiah, when they came back out of exile for the southern kingdom, rebuilt the wall. But uh, as for Judah's fortified cities, the brutal answer to them was only a generation away. You know, there were 46 fortified cities, according to Sennacherib, and their fate is told in a single verse in 2 Kings. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Not one survived. Not one. Why? They forgot their maker. They forgot who it was that called them into existence. That's why the doctrine of creation is so important for us. Because the doctrine of creation in God's image tells us who we are, who we belong to, what our place in this world is, what our true identity is as image bearers of God. And to for forget that is to lose yourself. But to forget that God is also the one who formed his people and delivered them out of Egypt as their redeemer also destroys you. And then putting your hope for protection that should have come from being in covenant relationship with God to fortified cities again shows these people are totally given over to self-reliance. Now, are you depressed? Because you should be. This is bad. <laughs> this is a bad, bad picture. But thank God the story does not end here. Because what we know is this. The Mosaic Covenant was given to the people to show them that not only did they need their sins atoned for, not only did they need to offer sacrifices to cover their guilt and their sin, blood needed to be shed, a substitution needed to be found, and through those animals, which pointed ultimately to the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sin of the world, sacrifices were important. But there was something else that was important for the covenant to be actualized. There needed to be righteousness. There needed to be a true and faithful son, a true and faithful Israel. And Israel was the mediator of the covenant. And Israel failed and failed and failed and never produced the righteousness to merit the blessings of God, to fulfill the covenant. They never did it. They failed. They couldn't do it. And so the whole purpose of the covenant was to drive them to the place of this. The Mosaic Covenant in the broad strokes shows how God drove Israel and drives us to Christ for salvation. God's justice requires that heaven be earned by perfect obedience to the law. 
This is what Christ came to do as our covenantal representative. He obeyed the law in our stead so that by faith we can become the righteousness of God in him. Christ earned the glory of heaven for his people, which we receive as a gift through faith. Canaan was a type, a physical representation of heaven to the people of God. But now the heaven we have received is that which Christ has earned for us. And so that is a reason why the Mosaic covenant was important. Jesus was born under the law with a real body and a real soul. And Christ was able to fulfill what he promised in the covenant of redemption. To earn for himself and the Father a people and an everlasting glory for them. Thus God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly in Christ through faith. Our problem as fallen human beings with a real uh, is... We think we don't really need Jesus that much. That's our problem. We think, you know, if I just knuckle down and try harder, I can obey God's law enough to get by. God is not really that holy. He's not that just. I'm not such a bad sinner. Hence, God gave Israel, who was his son, God put Israel in a temporary law covenant, wherein Israel had to earn earthly picture of heaven by her works. In the Mosaic law, God revealed the perfect righteousness his justice required. God's holiness burns brightly like a pillar of fire at Sinai, consuming everyone who touched the mountain. And God demanded of his son Israel obedience to his law to merit the blessings of the covenant. If Israel could earn the earthly blessings by their obedience, then there might be a chance for fallen man to somehow earn his way to heaven. Yet generation after generation, Israel failed miserably. Israel was barely off the shores of the Red Sea when Aaron made the golden calf. In Judges, each generation intermarried with the Canaanites and worshipped their gods. Despite all his wisdom and all his riches, Solomon lusted after other gods of his many wives. Some were better than others, but not one, none of them, could prevent the curses of the covenant from coming. Israel could not stay in God's presence by means of the law. They could not earn life with God, even after such a powerful lesson as the exile. Jesus comes to find Israel led by a brood of vipers, where even teachers of the law are whitewashed tombs. Without a doubt, the Mosaic Covenant paints across history in the real lives of people this. No man or woman can be justified by the works of the law. Rather, no one is righteous. All have turned aside. No one has done good. Not even one. Now, do you think you can, in some way, ever so small, earn something from God? Do you think you can? Well, look at Israel and think again. Even the impressive piety of someone like Moses and David is not good enough. Moses struck the rock and died outside the promised land. David slept with Bathsheba and commanded the census and was punished. As the fallen children of Adam, we need to become the righteousness of God to have everlasting life in heaven with God. But there's no way we can do this for ourselves. Rather, 
We need someone to do it for us, to do it all for us. And that is precisely what we find in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one who was born under the law, born of a woman. He is the true Israel who remained obedient to death, even the death of a cross. The Mosaic Covenant powerfully points us to Christ precisely due to its strictness. He is the one who fulfilled Sinai's command, do this and live. He is the one who answered back, all that you have commanded us, this I will do. And he did it. It was his pleasure, it was his meat to do the will of the Father. And the moment we begin to water down the law character of the Mosaic Covenant, the work of Christ starts to become obscured. If we are blind to the depth of our own sin, then we are handicapped in being able to grasp and perceive the grace of God it takes to save us in Christ. As the saying goes, if you don't understand sin, you will never understand grace. So God gives us the history of Israel to show us our sinful identity. Don't you think for one moment you would have been any better than they are? We discover our spiritual poverty not primarily through introspection, but by looking at the revelation of God in history as he deals with his people. As Paul says about the Old Testament history now, these things happened to them as types and were written down for our instruction. Paul means the events Israel experienced were pictures and models of things to come. They picture not only Christ, but also us. The fact reveals that the law is still the guide for our life in pleasing God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So then the Mosaic Covenant is important. It takes up a large section of the Bible. It's important because it lays the historical as well as the covenantal context for Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus comes as the true Son of God who is able to obey perfectly the law as the kingly representative of his people. And he thereby earns not only the earthly picture but the heavenly reality. Jesus makes true atonement once and for all by his blood. And he provides the necessary righteousness for us which we receive by faith alone. Moreover, Israel's constant failure under Moses shows us that we need Christ just as much as they did. The strictness of the Mosaic Covenant reminds us we have no hope of salvation outside of Christ. Obedience for everlasting life is impossible for mankind. But with God it is possible for he provided Christ. Therefore we can go about our everyday lives with confidence. It's easy for us some days to think very little of Christ and for our self-confidence before God to depend on our daily performance. We suppose that if we had a good day, God loves us. If we had a bad day, not so much. Yet our standing before God depends upon Christ alone. By his righteousness we are justified. By his grace we are sanctified. By his love we can love in return. And by his faithfulness we are brought to our heavenly home. So the whole point of Hosea chapter 8 is to make you see you're bankrupt. You have nothing. 
You have nothing to present to God. You have nothing you can show Him to win His favor or love or acceptance. And what we deserve is to be eternally abandoned by God for Him to turn His face away. But He turned His face away from the Son so that all of those who have faith in Him can receive the smile and the, the, His face shining upon us. That's why this is in the Bible. Certainly not for you to imitate Israel. You ever heard a sermon where somebody says, you need to be like Abraham or... Well, was that the time he lied twice? or you, you need to be like David. Oh, was that the time he went with Bathsheba? You need to be like whoever. The deadly be likes. No, you don't. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to cast your hope and heart upon him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for... Providing for us that which we could in no way ever provide for ourselves. We are, we are bankrupt. And you said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those of us who know we're bankrupt, who know we have no ground to stand on before you. Who know we are at your mercy. And who have reached out by your grace in hope of putting our reliance and trust not upon self, but upon Jesus. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, we pray that we might give as people who see Jesus is our righteousness. And we pray in his name. Amen.